2: 12
3: just over five and a half to play here in this fourth a huge turnaround but still an uphill climb for the Celtics after being dominated for the first three quarters of this game the Boston Celtics exploding here in the fourth and perhaps on the verge of the greatest fourth quarter comeback in NBA playoff history they were down by 21 to start this fourth quarter and Pierce hits the big free throw to tie the game Celtics lead one of the most amazing comebacks in NBA history. This crowd is absolutely delirious. It's not the old Boston Garden, but it certainly feels like it today. This entire building on its feet. And the Boston Celtics with the greatest fourth quarter comeback in NBA playoff history.
4: It was the loudest venue i had been at at that point in my career i had never heard anything like that in addition to what was being said it was a combination it wasn't limited to just how loud it was it was also the way in which it was being said it was vitriolic and it absolutely resonated with jason kidd i could just tell after that game in particular he just made it his personal quest and he didn't just want to win the series. He wanted to embarrass the Boston Celtics.
5: Nets broadcaster Iron Eagle has seen a lot more since doing games for the NBA, NFL, and college hoops. Game three of the 2002 Eastern Conference Finals, Nets in Boston for Memorial Day weekend still stands out. Brian Scalabrini.
0: The Boston Garden, for the most part, is pretty loud. And in the playoffs, it gets a little louder. It's like insane. We didn't have a lot of loud regular season games. It was insanely ridiculous when it was that loud. I just remember it being, like, so much different than the regular season.
5: On the road to the NBA Finals, the two biggest tests the Nets face were surviving Game 5 against the Pacers and bouncing back from Game 3 against the Celtics. They had blown a 26-point lead, fallen behind 2-1 to one in the series, and would be on the road again for Game 4. Everybody outside the Nets locker room thought the series was as good as over. Jason Kidd kind of did, too, in a different way. In the locker room after Game 3, the point guard who had changed everything for the franchise delivered a simple message to his teammates, something that would have sounded absurd to anybody who had just watched the game. We are never losing to these guys again. I was known to say some things that people shouldn't have heard. But that was one that I
6: said we'll never lose to Boston again after that meltdown that we had in Game 3. I think my teammates remembered that and made sure that that would never happen again. We never lost to Boston in the playoffs after that.
5: After a brutal first-round series against the Pacers in 2002, round two was almost a breeze against Charlotte. The Hornets were the fourth seed, and they'd beaten Orlando in four games in the first round. It was their fifth playoff appearance in six seasons, and now they were led by a rising star, Baron Davis, a 22-year-old guard who had just made his first all-star appearance but they were also in their last season in Charlotte before moving to New Orleans, and the marriage between the team and City had fallen apart. Five years earlier, the Hornets had led the NBA in attendance. In 2002, they were last. They had a feeling of a team marking time and a long goodbye, and the Nets cruised to a 2-0 series lead. Jason Kidd had 21 points, 7 rebounds, and 7 assists in Game 1 and Keith Van Horn had 20 points and 11 rebounds in game two. The most eventful part of the series turned out to be Kidd's violent head-on collision with Hornets guard David Wesley in the first half of game three. They collided down the other end. Kidd and Wesley
3: apparently banged heads, and both players really shaken up. Paul well, Silas is calling for a timeout. They're going to take a 20-second timeout. And you can see the blood coming from Jason Kidd.
6: Me and David go for a loose ball. We collide. I think I got the worst part of it. It opened uh, my eyebrow wide open right before halftime. So they take me into the locker room. And if anybody knows about the Charlotte Hornets locker room, it wasn't very big, very old school, where you had the seating around on a bench. The chalkboard is there in front of you. They put a table right in the middle of that locker room and started to uh, sew me up in front of my teammates. I remember Byron talking, and I don't think anyone was paying attention to what he was saying. They were all worried or all a little bit grossed out that um, I was bleeding out, but also Doc was trying to sew me up in the middle of Coach's
5: halftime speech. The Hornets went on to take game three, and now the question was whether Kidd would be able to go for game four. But there was a gift in the schedule. An extra day off between the two games in Charlotte. Here's Rod Thorne. His
7: head was swollen. He could not see, barely see out of one eye. I remember going in at halftime to to check to see because he really got banged up. He was lying in the shower on the thing that trainers used to tape, that little thing that they used. He was lying on that, and his eye was totally closed. And it was like, Wow. He's not going to play. He'll be lucky if he plays in the series. The doctor's looking at him like, this could be serious. And Jason's not saying anything. And we go back out. He tries to play. Couldn't really do it. And now we lose. We got a game off, a day off before we play again. And his head started to get a little bit better, but toward the end of the day off. And he said he was going to play. In today's world, he wouldn't have played because there's no doubt he had a concussion. In those days, you played. If you could go out there, you played. He ended up playing. He
8: played great, you know, in the next game, and we won that one. And Chris Carino. If he had to play the next day or play that Saturday, the kid might not play, but they were playing on Sunday. So he had two days off in between. And he went out in game four, got a triple-double, and the Nets went up 3-1 in the series and then went back and took him out in Game 5. A lot of people talk about that one game, though, in the shot, but that's one that stood out to me that season and in the lore of Jason Kidd, that Game 4 coming back from getting knocked out of Game 3. That was always one of my most memorable Jason Kidd moments.
5: Kidd returned with 24 points, 11 rebounds, and 8 assists in Game 4, and then had 23 points, 13 assists, and 5 steals in Game 5. The Nets held the Hornets to below 40% shooting in both games and wrapped up the series in five games. The knockout of the Hornets set the Nets up for a conference finals matchup against the league's most fabled franchise, the Boston Celtics. The Nets had put together the league's biggest turnaround, but they didn't have much history behind them. The Celtics, even with all their championships, were coming back out of the wilderness, too. They had missed the playoffs six straight years, the most dismal run in franchise history. But now they were turning things around with a pair of young stars in Paul Pierce and Antoine Walker. They had finished a couple of games behind the Nets in the Atlantic Division with a 49-33 record and beaten the second-seeded Detroit Pistons in five games.
3: They are one of the most storied franchises in all of sports and a team that was led by many of the greats. When a Celtics era came to an end, a new one always began. And their dominance spanned generations. The Nets have a history of their own. Most of it written by an ABA innovator who was simply known as The Doctor. But now, Celtic pride is back as this team is led by heroes of a new millennium. And in New Jersey, the new kid in town has sparked a revival. Today, these superstars seek to write their own history as the battle begins for the Eastern Conference crown.
5: Kid had 18 points, 13 rebounds, and 11 assists as the Nets won the opener in the Meadowlands. But the Celtics got a New Jersey split with a 93 86 winning game two. A brutal game in which neither team shot 35%. Pierce shot 3-for-20 for for Boston, and the Celtics still won the game. So they went up to Boston for Game 3, May 25th, Saturday of Memorial Day weekend. The Yankees were in town, too, for a four-game series with the Red Sox.
3: And the Boston Celtics with the greatest fourth-quarter comeback in NBA playoff history. What an emotional scene. As the Celtics take a 2-1 lead in this best-of-seven Eastern Conference Final. What seemed to be an insurmountable New Jersey lead turns into a devastating Nets loss.
1: We got in the locker room and we were like, we looked around the room and we were like, what the heck just happened? Like, it was crazy.
5: Curry Kittles and the Nets had just suffered a historic playoff loss in Game 3 of the Eastern Conference Finals. Their NBA best defense had been dominant at the start. The Celtics shot just 27% in the first half, and the Nets led 54-34 to at halftime. Three minutes into the second half, the lead was up to 65-39, to a 26-point margin. Going into the fourth quarter, the Nets were still up by 21. And then it all fell apart.
9: Here's Nets center Todd McCullough. I did think that that game was over for us and that we were going to take a 2-1 lead and essentially get home court advantage back. And then all of a sudden the rim seemed to shrink for us and the rim seemed huge to me for the Celtics and Paul Pierce was hitting everything and Walker and McCarty. And it just seemed like we just needed a couple of shots to stem that tide and we just couldn't get them. And everything seemed to be going right for them. And general manager Ron Thorne. were up 20 going into
7: the fourth quarter. You know, it looks good. And then all of a sudden, here they come. Paul Pierce, Walker started really playing well in that fourth period. And here they come. And at the end of it, they went right by us. I've never heard a crowd that loud. It almost lifted you up off your feet. The fans were so rabid and so loud. And when the game was over, Walker and Pierce jumped up on the table like they won the championship. And they were going absolutely
10: berserk. Rookie center, Jason Collins. Their fans were literally throwing coins at us, literally throwing like pennies and nickels at us on the bench. And we remember telling our security guard, that we're picking up the coins, like they're throwing these at us. And our security, because you know, in a sea of crowd, like you can't see who it is. Our security guard said, well, You got a duck. (laughs) Have you seen a comment? And we're like, thanks. (laughs) The Nets just shot four for 22
5: in the fourth quarter and didn't make a shot in the final four minutes. They're still up 90-84 to after Aaron Williams made two free throws with two minutes and 29 seconds to go. But they never scored again. The Celtics finally caught up and went ahead when Paul Pierce made two free throws with 46 seconds left. Pierce had 19 points in the fourth quarter as the Celtics outscored the Nets 41 to 16 and won 94 to 90. Brian Scalabrini.
0: Paul Pierce went to a completely different level. Funny story about that. Paul had his moments against us, and Byron Scott refused to like double team him or do anything different because he's like, why do we have to do something different with Paul Pierce when when I played, we didn't do anything different with Michael Jordan, right? So We go and he makes that incredible run and it's really it's coming out party, right? The truth. I remember shoot around like we were adamant about not double teaming Paul. Don't double team Paul. We don't need to double team Paul. It's Paul Pierce. I think going into game four, I think the first thing we said during our coaches meeting, all right, guys, we're gonna double team Paul Pierce. (laughs) And that was when they created Jason Kidd as a spy. So he kind of was like a roamer, a floater. He'd float off of Anderson. And then he took the charges, and he made the plays, and he got the rebounds. And it was a great way of, like, dealing with Paul.
5: The Nets were down 2-1 to one in the series with Game 4 still to come in Boston. And all the momentum was going the other way.
8: Here's Chris Carino. I remember when that fourth quarter's going on, and the lead is just dissolving right in front of our eyes. The building was as loud as I've ever experienced a building in my NBA career. They showed the Red Sox players in a suite. The roof, it may have lost a couple of screws at that point. But you had a legendary New Yorker and former net and Kenny Anderson running the point and Pierce and Antoine Walker. And it was just this tsunami. It was a wave that just kept pouring over the nets. They could never get their heads above water. And they just drowned in that fourth quarter. And you walked out of there that night going, I don't know if they can recover from this. And Jason Collins. I'll never forget. Like, all of us were
10: watching, you know, the highlights of the game. We felt, you know, obviously horrible after the game. And I'll never forget, Dr. Jack Ramsey was doing the ESPN analyst, and he said, this series is over. (laughs) This series is
5: absolutely over. Plenty of teams would have been shattered. These Nets weren't even shaken. Head coach Byron Scott definitely wasn't. Scott was 41 years old and is just his second year as a head coach. He was just five years removed from a 14-year playing career that included three NBA championships and three other trips to the finals. Here's Ion Eagle.
4: We were setting up the next day to go do a stand-up for a piece that would air later that night, and we waited just a bit at the hotel Byron Scott was addressing the media, so this is the day after, and he was asked a question. Fred Kerber of the New York Post asked him, how'd you sleep last night? And it was more like, well, how'd you sleep last night, kind of thing. And Byron said, slept like a baby, and everybody was taken aback. And we all looked at one another, and he said, we're going to win. We're going to win the next game. And he said it with such calm and a wry smile, and most of the media members Chuckled and then continued with their day. Finished up that media session, and Bill and I went to tape our stand up. And maybe he was the only one that knew it, but Byron was right. Everything he said was correct. And
8: Chris Carino. Byron, they've been through this stuff with the Lakers over the years. I know behind the scenes, Jason Kidd was that way with his teammates. Shake it off. That's it. The other coaches, you know, Eddie Jordan, Michael Corrin, Lawrence Frank. I mean, everybody was very confident that, hey, that was just a bad quarter, let's go out now and win the rest of the series. And they did. They went in in game four. Talk about, as Raph would say, onions, right? Just getting back up off the mat and going into game four in Boston and just saying, hey, that was one game, that's a blip. We're better, let's move on. What do you think, Scal?
0: We lost that game and everyone's devastated. We're all like, oh man, how are we gonna win this now? We, we should've won this game, whatever. And Kit comes in, It wasn't joyous, but he wasn't just blowing smoke either. He was, there ain't no way, I'm never gonna lose another game to them again. (laughs) And I, once again, naive, dumb, and young, and I'm like, didn't he see what just happened? We just blew a 26-point lead. How the hell are we not gonna lose a game to these guys again? We're down 2-1, but he was right. That is such the difference between those players, those elite all-time great players. They could dominate games so many different ways. They can will games so many ways. Kid just had this unique ability to find ways to win. And that's what this game is all about. I love the game for that reason. I felt like those all-time great players just made plays and Kid took 3 charges the next game, came up with big rebounds, couple buckets, passing, like he just found a way to win a game and that was Him saying it and then delivering on it.
5: To get the Nets restarted, Scott totally ignored the Game 3 finish. He put the focus on the first three quarters that the Nets had dominated. He pushed the positive going into Game 4. Here's Jason Collins.
10: B. Scott had the team video the next day, and he reminded us we were up by over 20 points in the fourth quarter. Like, they did something historic. But if we just you know keep doing what we're doing, we will be up again <laughs> against this team. And in the moment when they do make their push, we will have poise because we know now what their best punch looks like. And he said this, you know, something to the effect of imagine what it will mean if we win this next game. And then what will all those naysayers and all those people who've already counted us out, what are they gonna do? And then also know that. We win this game. The momentum will be back with us. So let's just focus on this one game. Send a message. Keep doing what we're doing, and that's what we did. <laughs> and assistant coach Michael
5: Corn.
11: We just put our hard hats on. We had some words for the players. Everybody spoke. Whether they took it to heart or whatever, I don't know. But we met as a coaching staff the next day. Watched the game again, and said so we did everything right till that fourth quarter. We just. Give them credit, too, because they defended shots we had, we didn't make,
5: that we could make. Sometimes you just got a hat to your opponent. This was the kind of cool, under fire, steady leadership that Scott had brought to the team all season. Here's Nets radio analyst Tim Capstraw. Byron Scott, his coolness under pressure and the way he would stand there with his arms
0: folded and there could be all sorts of craziness going on. And he prided himself on being the coolest guy in the room and the coolest guy in the arena. He handled everything like he had seen it all before because he did. He was a Showtime Laker. He was a great player on a great team. And it was hard to impress him. I thought he had that edge about him that really helped the organization. He just had the utmost confidence. He had an air about him that... The players on the team kind of kept his edge. He had a little edge to him and a confidence, and he looked like a million bucks. His way of carrying himself and his approach was really, really impressive to me.
12: And Aaron Williams. Byron, he's been there, done that. So when he speaks, you've got to listen. He's played with Hall of Famers. He's played with the best of the best. So he knows what he's talking about. He really believed in us, too. He's probably my favorite coach I've ever played for because he really believes in the players, and he gave you opportunity to do what you do best out there on the court. Didn't ask you to do anything you're not comfortable doing. He's one of my favorite coaches to play for.
5: Scott wasn't the only one with a message for the Nets. Rod Thorne was an NBA lifer as a player, coach, league executive, and general manager. Before Game 4, he had something to say to the team that he had put together, one that had already gone further than anybody expected seven months earlier. Here's Curry Kittles. The next day, Rod Thorne,
1: I think one of the best team presidents ever, gave the best team speech ever. I couldn't tell you what he said. I don't remember the exact words. All I know is when the team meeting was over, he reassured us that we were the better team. And he convinced us by his words that we're going to go out in that next game and destroy these guys because they're not better than you. Whatever happened in that game three was put it behind you. Game four, you're going to smash them. They can't compete with you. We left that meeting going, uh, they were in trouble. When that meeting was over, the Southern's were in trouble, and we just we crushed them. We knew we were better than them. And he just helped us get out of our heads, and it really shows you what leadership is all about.
5: Game four went down to the wire. The Nets opened up with a 31-18 to 18 lead at the end of the first quarter, and they were up by 14 in the third. The Celtics then cut the lead to four points going into the fourth quarter. There was no fourth-quarter blitz this time. The Celtics never had a lead the entire game. But they did finally tie it on two Paul Pierce free throws with 17.6 seconds to go. Byron Scott went small for offense, subbing in veteran guard Lucius Harris for center Todd McCullough. The Celtics immediately doubled Kidd off the inbounds pass and Kidd found an outlet from the trap with a cross-court pass to Harris.
3: Harris drives, draws the foul,
5: and he'll shoot two. Lucius Harris with an aggressive
3: move, and he'll go to the free-throw line with 6.6 seconds remaining. Harris 88% from the line in the playoffs. Knocks down the first, nets back up by one. Clutch free throws from Lucius Harris, the oldest member of the New Jersey Nets. Knocks them both down, and a two-point advantage.
5: The 31-year-old guard was in his ninth NBA season and fifth with the Nets, longer than anybody but Kittles. When Kittles was out the year before, he started a career-high 50 games. With Kittles back, he'd been New Jersey's steady and reliable third guard in a tight backcourt rotation.
6: Here's Jason Kidd. He was the glue. He was the one that kept everyone together. He kept everyone in good spirits. He was a great vet, helped with the younger guys. And then he had his opportunity in game four to seal the game. And there's no better person that I trust going to the free throw line to be able to make free throws. And that's what he did. That's who Lucius is, is someone who's always gonna fly under the radar. But you love to have him on your team, both offensively and defensively, because he's a true pro.
5: It wasn't over yet. Pierce got back to the line with a chance to tie the game with 1.1 seconds to go. This time, he missed both. And the Nets escaped when the rebound tip from Boston's Tony Batee rolled off the rim. Here's
7: Rod Thorn. Tony Batee, who was a backup player for the Celtics at the time, from the second position, We didn't box him out. He is tipping the ball right at the rim and missed it. It hit the back rim and came out, so we ended up winning. We go 2-2. Van Horn had a
5: double-double with 21 points and 10 rebounds, and Kittles led the Nets with 22 points plus 6 rebounds and 5 assists. As usual, Kidd was in the triple-double territory with 19 points, 9 rebounds, and 9 assists. Here's Iron Eagle.
4: Jason Kidd, the maestro, leading the way and doing basically what he set out to do, quiet that Boston crowd and hurt them in many ways. Because on the flip side of what I saw in the Celtic rally, there was deafening silence at the end of the next game and certainly by the end of the series.
5: Back home for Game 5, the Nets went up by 15 early, led by 3 going into the 4th then put together a 13-0 run and locked up a 103-92 to win.
3: Game 5
5: of the Eastern Conference Final.
3: Kidd puts it in. Some guys want to take big shots. Jason Kidd has always been one of those players. Van Horn with Strickland on him. And a foul. Count it! Keith Van Horn, who had several big Fourth quarter plays in game four. A big bucket there. Lucius Harris. 14-point lead. A 13-0 run from the New Jersey Nets. The Nets have answered every challenge tonight. Van Horn. Bang!
5: A 20-to-1 run. A 20-point lead for the Nets. And then it was back to Boston for game six. The Nets were up by three under a minute to go when Curry Kittles drove baseline and flung the ball from underneath the basket out to Keith Van Horn at the top of the key. Shot clock
3: winding down. Kittles inside. Van Horn for three. Bang! Keith Van Horn from downtown. Another clutch fourth quarter bucket. And New Jersey goes up by six. One second left on the clock. Kerry Kittles penetrates along the baseline, and he finds Keith Van Horn
11: on top. Kittles underneath, can't get a shot off himself, but he
3: finds Van Horn for another huge fourth-quarter three-pointer.
5: Keith was a big-time scorer with a beautiful jump shot. He could really come off screens well and knock down shots. And throughout the 2002 playoffs, he had his biggest games – at the most crucial moments. In Game 5 against Indiana, 27 points with five three-pointers. In Game 4 against Boston, a double-double with 21 points and 10 rebounds. He had 19 points and four three-pointers in Game 5. And in Game 6, he delivered the dagger that buried the Celtics for good. Here's Ian Eagle.
4: Keith Van Oren was a key contributor during that postseason run. And it was one of the best stretches of his career. And I'm not sure Keith gets enough credit for the role that he played. Keith made big-time plays in that postseason.
5: Ben Horn's three-pointer put the Nets up 94-88, and the Celtics never scored again. After a quarter century in the NBA with one playoff series win, after winning just 26 games the season before, the New Jersey Nets were going to the NBA Finals For the first time, Mike O'Korn was a New Jersey native who headed off to college at North Carolina right when the Nets were moving to New Jersey. Four years later, they made him a first-round draft pick. In May of 2002, he had been with the team for nearly all of the previous 20 years as either a player, a broadcaster, or an assistant coach. You know, being an older guy now, I watched the Boston
11: Lakers games back, Years ago, you know, with Will Chamberlain and Bill Russell and those guys, and to win a playoff game in Boston Garden, not the real old Boston Garden, but the TD Garden, it was special to do that up there. It really was. The history that the Boston Celtics have and to beat them in a playoff series, especially to go to the NBA Finals, was something the Nets had never done. And I personally had never done, none of us really, except for Byron. They won games up there all the time when he was with the Lakers. So it it was all half of him. But it was something special to do that. And the that's going to the NBA Finals. That just sounded so good. <laughs> it really did. One of their guys, after they beat us in game three, jumped on the scorer's table. And, you know, was going to the crowd and going nuts. They came back and they deserved it. But somehow that got to us a little bit, him doing that. I think it was Antoine Walker, if I'm not mistaken. He was out of his mind happy and good for him. But something about him jumping like they had won it, I think rubbed us a little bit. And that might have helped us a little bit.
5: Down the line, maybe a little, not much, but maybe a little. Center Jason Collins was just a rookie, but after the experience of Game 3, he didn't need decades of history to appreciate the moment.
10: There is no greater feeling than going to your opponent's home court and shutting everyone up. (laughs) Like, or seeing, like, tears on on their faces of, like, the home crowd, like their home crowd as you're beating their team especially after their fans had been throwing coins at us, and like throwing projectiles at us, to see them, they had stopped because at that point it was over and, like, the realization was hitting them. You're just seeing them, the look of their team loss and knowing that we did that to their team, but we did it to their fans kind of thing. So there's a sweet joy in that. Tom McCullough felt the same way as he headed to the finals
5: for the second straight year after winning the East with the Sixers a year earlier.
9: It felt great. I mean, it was a completely different environment when that game was over and we had won. The energy in the building, it just got sucked out of there. There's something to be said for celebrating on your home court and winning the Eastern Championship in front of your home fans, and then there's something else to be said for going on the road and really only having the people in that locker room and any family that was there to go into a building and just go up against all this 20,000 fans that would love to see lose and come out victorious. There's something special about that experience as well. Finally,
5: there was Jason
9: Kidd who
5: held up his end.
9: He told the Nets
5: after game three, they weren't losing another game and they didn't. He closed the Celtics out with another triple-double. 15 points, 13 assists, 13 rebounds. And here comes Kidd, four on three break
3: for New Jersey and just like that it's eight nothing jason kidd always finds the loose balls he always finds the long rebounds and jason kidd with another rebound nice Uh, feed These fast breaks they happen in the blink of an eye anytime jason kidd gets a deep rebound a rebound out near the free throw line he's going coast to coast once again the quick fast break and a foul just so explosive as soon as he gets the ball. Kidd, nice feed to Harris. Eyes in the back of his head. Aaron Williams and a foul. Jason Kidd setting him up beautifully. Kidd rattles it in. Jason Kidd with a big bucket. Kidd, alley up to Martin. Oh, what a sensational pass from Jason Kidd. Jason Kidd, by the way, with his numbers tonight, averaging a triple-double. Averaging a triple-double for the series. A very resilient team led by that man, who is a team-first player. As good as he is, he's playing the best basketball of his career.
6: When you win game six in Boston, to be able to celebrate the Eastern Conference Championship, something that no one had obtained as a net. So it was, just, it was great for our owners, it was great for our coaches, everyone from top to bottom, and also the city. When you talk about Jersey, to be able to uh, represent Jersey was a great feeling, but it was just surreal because this is something as a kid you dream about and now you launch your ticket to go to the world champions to be able to play the
5: Lakers, and we were excited. This was a Lakers team on the verge of dynasty status. Shaq and Kobe were coming off two consecutive championships and in a three-peat, something that coach Phil Jackson was familiar with. Kerry Kittles had seen a version of this before when he and the Nets ran up against Jackson in the last stand, Chicago Bulls, in the 1998 playoffs. But that was the first round. This was the finals and a whole different deal. We
1: had no idea what we were getting ourselves into against the Lakers. The media, I'll never forget the media day at their facility in L.A., and we walked in and we were just like, oh, this is just too much for us. But I will say, though, that those Shaq and Kobe teams were dominant teams. They were, those three years, they were an incredible group. I mean, from top to bottom, they were an incredible group.
5: The rookie radio man Chris Carino was going to the finals in year one, but it was an entirely new experience for the organization, and the scope of it was tough to handle.
8: From a preparation standpoint, from just a comfort standpoint, it's just all so different, and it was overwhelming. And now you're going up against Shaq and Kobe and the Lakers going for their third in a row. We kind of felt like the opening act, like the ones nobody was paying attention to.
5: Senator Todd McCullough was the only player on the roster who had been to the finals before, losing five games with the Sixers a year earlier.
9: We'd watch a lot of tape on the Lakers and guys had watched them in previous seasons, so I think we knew we were gonna have our hands full. But the enormity of the moment I don't think there's any way to really prepare for, especially when you're starting in LA. And, you know, that fan base is maybe different than playing in Boston, but they love their Lakers that team plays well on the road, that team plays well at home. And them having the experience of winning the previous two years, I don't think they're overwhelmed by the moment. I think they had a mission at the start of each of those years. Our goal is to win this thing. We did last year, we know we can do it again. And we were sort of discovering new territory throughout the year. We were going further than the Nets had gone before. So we were in kind of a new adventure. And so I think it did take us a while to get our standing. And uh, by that time, you can't really give up too many wins against that Laker team. They're going to they're gonna steamroll you.
5: And that's exactly what happened. It was a sweep. The Nets' last chance to hold onto the series slipped away when they went back to New Jersey for game three. They led by as many as six points in the fourth quarter. But Robert Ory's three-pointer put the Lakers up for good with just over three minutes to go. The Nets lost 106 to 103. Three nights later, it was over. Here's General
7: Manager Rod Thorne. The first game was real close. They sort of won it in the last minute and a half of the game. Second game, they were more dominant. Third game, we're in the game going into the fourth quarter. We were either ahead or right there. In the fourth quarter, they pulled away. And the fourth game, same thing happened. And Aaron Williams.
12: It was an epic series for us in the wrong ways. If you're gonna lose to a team and get swept by a team, there's no shame in Shaq and Kobe. Come on, those are two top ten players of all time in their prime. Kobe's the second coming of Michael Jordan, and Shaq is arguably the most dominant big player to ever play the game. There's no shame. Although we we didn't think they were that much better than us, for whatever reason, things didn't go our way. They were just a force. They they weren't gonna be stopped no matter. What defensive plan we had, what offensive plan with double, triple, whatever, they were on a mission, and and they were just that good. They were just that good, and there was really nothing we could do.
5: Nets broadcaster Ian Eagle.
4: The Nets met their match. It was the first time that I saw them a bit overwhelmed in the moment, and in most cases that year when they needed Jason Kidd to step forward and take over, he could. And against the Lakers, he could not. He needed a lot more help. And they just didn't have the firepower to deal with Kobe and Shaq. Shaq in particular was completely overpowering.
5: O'Neal was at his fearsome peak winning his third straight finals MVP while averaging thirty six points and twelve rebounds and shooting sixty percent. Here's assistant coach Michael Corn Early game one, I mean
11: real early, maybe Eight-plus minutes to go in the first quarter. Todd's sitting on the bench with a couple fouls because Shaq is Shaq. And I remember looking over to Lawrence Frank and Eddie. I'm in the middle. Eddie's on my right next to Byron. Lars is to my left. And I said, guys, we're in trouble. They give me the old, Mike, what are you talking about? So it's eight minutes. We're down six. Don't worry about it. I said, no, it's... look down there. Look down. Aaron Williams is guarding Shaq, and we can't see him. <laughs> <That's> a... <laughs> That's how big Shaq was. <laughs> and that son of a gun, oh, he was terrific. The whole four games, he was dominant.
5: Brian Scalabrini.
0: Game one, I thought it was over, like, in the first five minutes of the game. And this is the weirdest thing, because I'm a pretty confident person that you could always find a way to win. Okay, so game one happened, boom, 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 it's over. Like, Dave, okay, we're down one, we still sure can get the next one. Game two is happening, it's about four minutes to go in the second quarter. And... I'm not a big scoreboard watcher. I do time a lot. So I look at the time, look at the game, look at the time. And I'm thinking to myself, like, man, we are balling right now. Like, we're playing really good basketball. am like, if I was to say, like, all the markers of a good team, I feel like we're rebounding the ball well. I feel like we're contesting shots. I feel like we're low turnover. We're getting a fair amount of stuff out of transition. And in the half court, we're getting really good shots, right? So, like, when we did those things, we'd be up by 25. Like, the game was... Out of reach, right? So I remember watching the game and thinking like, all right, like this is this is good. Like we're, we're playing good. I look up at the score. I think I remember we were up by six. And then they ran center opposite three straight times. It went to Shaq three straight times. And I think he bucket, bucket, foul. And the next thing you know, like all that we're playing really good basketball. I don't know if there's another level for us to go to. And we're up by one. And then Kobe does something, we're down by one, we're down by three, down by seven. I'm like, whoa, what just happened here? And then I remember game four, we had somewhat of a fight. Byron went with a smaller lineup. It kind of worked, but I just never, I've only felt this way two times in my NBA career. It was that series against Shaq, and then the series against the Miami Heat against Shaq. And that was my last series with the Nets. I just felt like the guy's like insurmountable. Like, there's nothing you can do. You can play good basketball. You can have good position. You can do all the things right, and he's just a force. And
5: backup center, Jason Collins.
10: Shaq absolutely destroyed us in the finals, in the 2002 finals. There was a scene, a picture, where Aaron Williams, one of our backup centers, he's one of the strongest players I've ever played with. And I'm talking, like, not only basketball core strength, but also weight room strong. The guy warms up at 225 on the bench press. Super strong guy. There was one (laughs) picture that I saw and when we saw it in the locker room where Shaq pump faked Aaron. Aaron got in the air and sort of just landed on Shaq and sort of was like a bear hug, but like his feet were sort of dangling off of Shaq. (laughs) So Lucia's one of the funniest teammates I played with. Lucia said, he said, like, how are we going to win when the strongest guy on our team looks like a little kid hanging off his, his grown man's back?
5: <laughs> O'Neal was the one obstacle the Nets couldn't overcome. But it didn't take away from the brilliant turnaround, and the story wasn't over yet. Michael Corrin.
11: We lost, and you, you take it hard because you're there. You almost get a chance to win a championship. But to lose to the Lakers, Phil Jacks, Colby, Shaq, of course, what are you going to do? They were the better team and they showed it, (laughs) and they didn't fool around. I mean, even up 3-0 at home, even game three, we were going pretty good, but they would shut the door on us every time we were getting close, and they would just do something and take over the game. It turned out to be a heck of a year for us from going the year before, not being a very good team, to go to the NBA Finals, And, and the Nets were on the map now. We were no joke anymore. We were ready to rumble against anybody, and we certainly proved it again the next year when we went back to the Finals.
5: In our final episode, the Nets weren't going to take anybody by surprise the next season, but they met the challenge and lived up to the expectations with a second straight run to the NBA Finals.